Tonight we are continuing the, our series uh, that we started a, a couple of weeks ago uh, as we look at the epistles of John. Why does the world need a Savior? Why, why do we need an advocate? Why must there be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice? And the answer is sin. And that's what John talks about in this passage we're going to be looking at tonight. Humanity has a sin problem. It is our most fundamental problem, and it affects everyone. Now, obviously, uh, sin is not a popular subject in our day. People will go to great lengths to hide it, to rationalize it, to deny it. But we must understand that, that when, when we deny sin, then we call God a liar. And we challenge His Word, and we question His character. And, and, uh, and there are so many that say that sin is not serious, and, it's, and that Jesus didn't need to die. But... I want to say this, find out what a person believes about Jesus and what that person thinks about sin. And that's going to tell you all that you need to know. Because to think correctly about Jesus, you must think correctly about sin. In order to understand what Jesus came to do, you must have a correct understanding of sin. Uh, because otherwise, his coming doesn't make any sense and it becomes frivolous, it becomes a foolish in a way. Uh, and so uh, we, we, we must see sin for what it is. And when you see sin for what it is, you'll immediately begin to see your own personal need and the world's need as well for Jesus as your Savior, Jesus as your advocate, Jesus for your, as your atoning sacrifice. Now those last two, I thought that we were going to get to them tonight, but we're not. There's no way. Uh, we're we're going to get into chapter two next week and we'll be talking about Jesus, Jesus as our advocate and we'll be talking about the atoning sacrifice, and another word that's used in some translations, it's a big, you know, $10 word is propitiation. But we're going to be talking a little bit, we're going to touch on a little bit of that tonight, but most of it we'll, we'll talk about next week when it comes up in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2. But let's begin reading in 1 John chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Last week we did the prologue, which is verses 1 through 4. Tonight we're looking at verses 5 through 10. And this is what he says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. You know, none of the other biblical writers tells us so much about what God really is as does the apostle John. All of the writers tell us about what he does. Some describe the glory that surrounds him, but John, he tells what God is in his true nature, and he does it in, in three striking definitions. And, and I'm talking about also the gospel and in the epistles, but he says that God is spirit. We read that in John 4, 24. Then we read this passage where it says God is light, 1 John 1, 5. And then later in 1 John in chapter 4, verse 8, we're told that God is love. So John's definition of God is stated uh, very clearly, but he states them in, in a positive way and a negative way, but he always offers the positive statement first. What I mean by that is he says, God is light. That's the positive. In him, there is no darkness. That's the negative side of the definition where he, both of them clarify it. And this statement that God is light, is a, it, it just carries the reader into a world of, of imagery that is as old as religion, and that frankly would have been quite familiar, familiar both to John's readers and to his opponents. Um, you know, we've talked about how uh, some of the problems he was writing was dealing with some of the Gnostic issues, Gnostic beliefs. And you remember a, a Gnostic person believed that they had could gain some special knowledge, and that would be, what's another word for that? Enlightenment. And so light was a big issue there. And so this is a, this, they know exactly what it's talking about. They, they would have understood it, would have been familiar with it. 
And, and the, the, the reality that God is light is, is an embedded aspect in the faithful gospel pro- proclamation. And it, it highlights the contrast between who God is and who we are in Him. And in fact, the, the word light occurs in some form over 275 times in the Bible and 95 times in the New Testament. It's a very popular theme throughout scriptures where it describes God as light or it talks about him living in the light or that sort of thing. I'm going to read several of these and this is just a sampling of them, but you'll get a sense of the theme throughout scripture uh, when when it comes to this idea of light. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Psalm 104, 1 and 2. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Isaiah 49, 6. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 61. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Uh, Isaiah 60, verse 3, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Same chapter, Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Man, that's a powerful passage of scripture there. Micah 7, 8. Do not gloat over me, my my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Then we go to the New Testament. John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 36, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. And then John 12, 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So you see this theme of light and darkness all throughout scripture. And as you see it, uh, you see that that the 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 idea of light carries with it goodness and holiness and purity and darkness is is the opposite of that. It is the nature of light that it is visible, and that it also makes other things visible. That's one of the things light does is it exposes whatever has been hidden in darkness, and and it's it is it, it's also true that when you think about God, about making things visible, it's true that God's nature is to make himself known. That's one of the reasons why we, why he's known and, and described as light. That, now, the image of light in Scripture generally has ethical overtones. That is, that it, it is a symbol of holiness and purity, as well as of intelligence. In other words, you know, the light comes on, uh, and vision and growth and all of those things. But these ethical or moral overtones are are of great importance because you ask is god righteous well if so then the lives of christians should be known for being righteous is god holy if he is holy we should be holy indeed says john if anyone claims to know god while yet while yet living a sinful life he is either deceiving himself or lying we're going to see how he applies the different scenarios and in some cases, he says they're lying. In other cases, he says they're, they're deceiving themselves. Um, the, the, the second unique characteristic of the biblical use of light is in applying it to Jesus. That is, applying it to the historical Jesus in exactly the same way that it is applied to God in the Old Testament. Jesus is the light in the same sense that God is light. He is holy and the source of all good. In his gospel, John wrote in John 1, verses 4 and 5, in him was life, talking about Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, how is it that John received the message that God is light? Because this is the message he said we proclaim. How did he receive the message that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all? Well, is it not 
that Jesus is also the light and that he revealed himself to John? This is what he's saying. He's saying, I, I, this is the message that I'm proclaiming. I have, I have seen, I have heard with my own ears, I've, I've touched with my own hands, and here's the message. God is light. How does he know it? This is, uh, uh, this is another example of, it, of these, this idea of light being applied to the person of Jesus because John obviously knew that God was light because that's what he saw in Jesus. It, it was he who was seen and heard and touched who must be fully proclaimed. Now, one of the characteristics of this letter that John uh, is that he, he frequently accompanies a positive statement of some truth with a negative statement designed to reinforce it. That's what I kind of mentioned earlier. God is light. In him, there is no darkness. So you got the positive and the negative. Uh, and, and John's definition of, of light, of God as light, is followed here by a denial of three false claims. Now, we've talked about the... The fact that a big part of why John was writing this was to counter some false teachings that were being propagated by people who were influenced by uh, a Gnostic philosophy. Um, and, and so when we read these statements, uh, these denials of these false claims, what you see there is actually an echo of the erroneous, erroneous teaching of, the, of these Gnostic Christians. The, the, these men claimed to have entered into a higher fellowship with God. But, he, but even as they made their claims, they showed by their actions that they failed to take sin, which is actually opposed to the nature of God. They failed to take that seriously. What Their religion consisted from the ethical standpoint of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called easy, gross, excuse me, easy grace. They claimed fellowship with God, but the fellowship was not costly. It didn't, it, didn't, it didn't require anything from them. They separated religion and morals. And they separated religion and ethics. And consequently, they ended up claiming the highest privileges, and yet they lived however they wanted, however they pleased. And uh, so in answering their views, what John does, he, he uses three if-we-say clauses. And then when he says, if-we-say then whatever he says next is actually one of the claims that was made by these false teachers. And then he's going to answer each of those claims. So he says, uh, and so he, he uses three, if we say clauses, and then he presents a contradiction between a believer's profession of, of faith and their lifestyle. And in each case it, it, where you read, if we say it introduces uh, one of those false claims. In, in the first of these, John sets up the claim, then he describes the contradiction, and then he draws a reasonable conclusion. And in this way, he leads his readers through a self-evaluation of the very real issue of sin in a believer's life. So the first false claim is a common one. Namely, it is that a person can have fellowship with God at, at the same time that his life is characterized by unrighteousness. That was the claim that was being made. They're saying, I have fellowship with God, but I don't have to live a righteous life. And you know, it, it's still, it's people, this is still a claim. It's very common today. I mean, they, they, it's not because of uh, any sort of Gnostic teaching or anything like that, but people still believe this. They say, well, I believe in God. Have you ever heard somebody who's living in just absolute sin? And then they'll say, they'll say well, I believe in God. I know Jesus. But, but this is the false claim. The, the claim is that a person can have fellowship with God and at the same time have a life that is characterized by unrighteousness. And John expresses it as, a, as the claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness. And to, to walk in the darkness means to sin habitually. Uh, walking, the idea of walking is a well-known Jewish metaphor for how one lives. So when you talk about your walk to the Jewish mind, that's a metaphor to say, talking about how you live. Therefore, walking in darkness is a metaphor for living according to sin. So the, the, the present tense verb that he uses here indicates a continual practice of that which is opposed to God. Uh, so he, he is not talking about, in this verse, he is not talking about a person who sins on occasion. He's not saying, well, if you ever have a, if you ever commit a sin and you say you're in fellowship with God, then you're lying. That's not what he's saying here. 
He's, he's not talking about the, uh, saying that you should have a sinless life. And we know that from what he says just in a few verses down. Because, for example, in, in verse 9, he says, if we confess our sin, he's talking to these same believers, if we confess our sin, he's faithful just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we know he's not saying that the goal is to live a sinless life. And if you don't live a sinless life, and then you claim to have fellowship with God, then you're lying. That's not what he's talking about here. His rebuke applies to anyone who claims to know God while at the same time they treat sin lightly and they live perpetually in a lifestyle of sin. Someone who says, I know God, I have fellowship with God, and yet they do whatever they want, live however they want, and they don't care about the righteousness of God. Now, the contrast to a claim of fellowship with God while actually walking in darkness is actually walking in the light. That's the contrast, which uh, is of necessity accompanied by the reality of Christian fellowship and continually repeated cleansing from present sin. And we're going to see how tonight we're going to see how walking in the light is very closely related to having fellowship with other believers but it's also, it also, as John lays it out, it means that when we do sin, we take sin seriously, that we deal with it. Um, and if we don't, then we're, then we're not taking it seriously, and maybe we're leaning toward walking in the darkness. But the fact that John speaks of cleansing from sin using the present tense of the verb indicates that he's not referring to sinless perfection here, but to a genuine and continuous pursuit of holiness out of which increased fellowship with other Christians and confession of sin will come. And it, and it is that, those are the things that he's talking about here that must characterize everyone who says that they know God. If you know God, then that's, those, that's going to characterize your life. When, when, when there is a stark contradiction between our claim of closeness to the light and our lifestyle of darkness. John says that the only conclusion that can be drawn is that we're lying. We're just simply lying when we say we know God. That's what, that's what his conclusion is. If we say we have fellowship with God and, and yet we gawk at pornography all day long, we're liars. If we say that we enjoy intimacy with God, but we are verbally or physically abusive toward our spouses and children, we lie. If we claim to have to, to, to be close with God, but we stir up trouble at church through murmuring and criticism and claim, complaining and gossip, then we're not practicing the truth. But, but John gives us two results of walking in the light. First, uh, the, what's interesting here is, is that since John has already said that one who claims fellowship with God while actually walking in darkness is lying, we might then in verse 7, expect John to re reply that the one who walks in darkness has fellowship with God. Because that would be what you would think would be the opposite. Now that's true. It is true. The one who walks in light has fellowship with God. But John, in a somewhat condensed form of writing, he sort of skips over that part uh, to, to show us that it also means that a person walking in the light will have fellowship with other believers. Because that's what he actually says. What's what he writes, he says, but if you walk in the light, you will have fellowship with one another. So walking in the light is obviously fellowship with God. But it's very, very closely connected here by John toward having fellowship with other believers. It's connected with that. Uh, and so uh, in truth, uh, it is in fellowship with one another on the horizontal dimension that our fellowship with God on the vertical dimension is demonstrated. In other words, fellowship with other believers and having this, this relationship, this koinonia that we talked about last week, is actually a sign, it's a signal that things are, are okay in my relationship here with God. The two are connected. Um, and when I get things right with God, when I'm walking with God rightly, then that leads to right relationships with other people. Why is that? Well, because if I'm not treating you well, the Holy Spirit convicts me of it. My relationship with God will correct me in that. Does that make sense? And so the, my relationship with God 
has a direct impact on my fellowship with, with other, other people. Um, a, a person walking the light will have fellowship with other believers. Now, that's true. And the reason John brings it up here is that did, did, did the Gnostics claim fellowship with God? Yes, they did. They claimed that. But then his question in the process and going through this is saying, then, then why did they separate themselves from other believers? Why did they pull out? Why did they not maintain the fellowship? And can I tell you, the same critique applies to those who, in the name of a better or purer fellowship with God, who break Christian fellowship today. I, I know of a guy, uh, it was in a church that we pastored some time ago, but, but uh, he went uh, from church to church in the city for a long time, and then finally he just started his own church because he said nobody does it right. Well, first of all, you got some pride issues there. Um, but second of all, if you, if you are that in with God, if you're that close to God, then why are you pulling away from, these, uh, from, the, from the church? Why are you pulling away from the body of believers? If you know Jesus that well, then why can't you get along with his bride? And so that's the point, part of the point that he's making here. It, it's clear that fellowship with God leads to fellowship with his people. Be, because God is light, those who walk in the light are united in their common walking. We're walking in the light. Remember what a light is? Well, excuse me, what walking is? It's a way of life. So we're united in our way of life in honoring God and walking in the righteousness of God. Second, John says that the one walking in the light will find the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ available to him for continual cleansing. Now, I got to say, think about this here. At first glance, this actually seems like a contradiction. Because here's the thing. He's saying if you walk in the light, you're not going to walk in darkness. So the question is, then he says, you find the blood of Jesus that will cleanse us from, from sin. Well, here's the question. Why does the one who, is, who already walks in the light need cleansing? Is, is he not already cleansed? Well, it seems like a contradiction, but it's only superficial because you got to remember, John is not talking about a person who never sins. He's talking about somebody, or who occasionally sins. He's talking about somebody who's walking in habitual sin with no regard to the righteousness of God. But to the one who is walking the light, he's not saying that you're never going to sin. He's acknowledging the fact that a Christian will sin. I mean, we'll take an informal survey. Anybody sinned this week? Okay, oh, very good. It's 100%, just for those that aren't sure. And if you didn't raise your hand, I counted you in the vote anyway, because <laughs> I know it's true. That's just the way it is. So, so uh, it's not really a contradiction, because what John is saying is that the one who walks in fellowship with God will, will find forgiveness for any sin that may enter their life if they'll take that sin seriously and do something specifically that we're going to talk about in a moment. In fact, such forgiveness is already provided for by the sacrifice of Christ. You know, that his, his sacrifice covered, it covers every sin that I have ever committed, but it also has the power to cover every sin that I'm going to commit. Right? Because he doesn't have to die again. I don't have to find another sacrifice. Now, that does not say, give us license to say, well, then let's sin it up. And we're going to mention that a couple times more in this study tonight. Uh, but it's actually is motivation for us to live a holy life. But, um, it's not designed to encourage sin, but to encourage, encourage holiness. All right, the second false teaching John denies uh, is the teaching that in the case of a particular Christian, that sin uh, can have been er eradicated. Uh, it is the claim that we are without sin, verse 8, um, where he says, if we say we are without sin. Now, there's a little bit of a tension between verse 6 and verse 8 because the tension between the two verses, simply put, is that verse one, excuse me, verse six says that if you live according to sin while claiming fellowship with God, you lie. And then verse eight says, but if you claim to be without sin, you lie. And they almost seem like they're, they're, there's tension there that almost feel like they're the opposite. But how are these verses to be understood together? Well, the most straightforward answer is that walking in darkness, as he's talking about in, the, in verse five is not equivalent to, to having an occasional sin. It's not the same thing. 
it's, it's not the same as living according to sin. So in other words, John acknowledges that all believers will commit sin and to, and to claim otherwise, he says, to say that you're not going to sin, that you don't sin anymore, he says that that's a lie. Uh, but, but, but there's a difference between committing sins and, and living according to sin, walking in darkness. Those are the two different things. The, the, the former refers to believers' frequent and failings as they seek to live according to their fellowship with God, and then the latter refers to not living according to the fellowship with God at all. So the, the first false teaching was that it's possible to have fellowship with God and still continue sinning. And in the second claim, there is this additional error that the individual, either through the Gnostic process of enlightenment or through spiritual development, that that person has ceased to sin at all. Now, what's interesting here is that in this case, in the, in the second situation, John does not say that the person professing such perfection is lying. That's not what he says this time. He did that with the previous claim with verse 6. So the one who says, I know God, but I'm walking in sin, he says they're lying. But the one who says, I don't sin anymore, that person, he says, has deceived himself. A little bit different. And the seriousness of the matter emerges when you begin to think about the implications of that. Because if a person believes himself not to sin, he therefore excuses his sinful deeds and he does not bring them to God for confession and for cleansing. So if, I'm, if I deceive myself into thinking that, that I don't sin anymore, then when I do sin, I'll just make some sort of, sort of justification for it. And instead of confessing it and making it right, I let it lie and let it fester. You see the, the danger there? Um, and sadly, you know, more and more people in our world are falling into this deception. They're denying or downplaying the reality of their own sinfulness. John MacArthur puts it well. I want to read this to you. He said, people today minimize and redefine sin, often alleging that the failures, quote unquote, failures of their lives and certain, quote unquote, disorders exist because of how others have treated them. The victim mentality reigns supreme as popular culture comforts itself in affirming that people are basically good and whatever may be wrong is not really wrong, but merely a preference of personal freedom. Instead of accepting responsibility for their behavior, people demand to be accepted as they are. Boy, isn't that a description of the world in which we live? But here's the thing. Instead of denying that we sin, John says that we are to admit and confess the sin. Only then can God truly cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that term confess is a compound word in the Greek that literally means to say the same thing. That's what it means. To confess our sins is to concede that something is factual or true. In other words, we agree with what God says about our sinfulness. That's what it means to confess. Uh, and, and we agree with what God says about our sinfulness, not what we would prefer to be true or what the world says about it. When, when we sin, we have to take responsibility for it. We can't blame anybody else. And, and, and we, we do it even in subtle ways so often, you know. Um, have you ever lost your temper at somebody? I mean, just, just exploded out of you. And then you looked at them and say, I'm sorry, but you made me so mad. Well, you know, listen, anger, anger is, not a, is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. What you do with it is either sinful or not sinful. But, but <clears throat> when we say, you made me mad, what are we doing? We're trying to put the blame on them for our own actions. Aren't we? As I've used the illustration before about, you know, if I had a cup up here that, was, that had water in it, and I began to shake the cup and water began to slosh all around. All around. I've, I've asked in the past, I said, why did the water spill? And somebody would say, well, because you're shaking it. And I'd say, no, that's not right. And, you, and they look at me really weird in that moment saying, what, what do you mean that's not right? Because here's the thing. If I didn't have the water in there in the first place, I could shake it all I want. No water's coming out. Right? So the shaking is not the problem. 
When somebody shakes you up and anger comes out, the shaking is not, is, is, is not the problem. It's what's inside that comes out that is the problem. So I can't blame it on somebody else. I have to take responsibility for, for not being able to have self-control in dealing with the anger. Anger is not a problem. Jesus himself was angry, right? Wasn't he in the temple when he was turning tables over? That seemed pretty angry. So anger is not a sin. What I do with it can be a sin. And if I use, if I unleash that anger and I, and I just, just pelt the people around me with, with, uh, with my, you know, whatever is coming out of me, then, then I have to own that. And I can't say, well, you just, you made me so angry. I can't make excuses for it. I can, all I can do is just say, there is no excuse for me treating you like that. I don't care what you did. I don't care about the circumstances. I don't care what kind of day I had. There's no excuse. I need you to forgive me. We have to own our, our own sin, take responsibility for it. We don't blame others. We don't blame our family history. We don't blame our genes. We don't blame, blame our environment. We don't blame our circumstances. We don't blame the devil. You know, how many remember back in the 70s? The devil made me do it. Remember that one? We can't do, that's not true. We can't use that one. We can't blame God and say, well, you know, God's the one who put me here, whatever. He made me like this. And, you know, but we admit that we are sinners in need of God's forgiveness and restoration. And when we do this, when we simply confess our sinfulness to God, that's all we do. Because we cannot cleanse ourselves. This is the key we have to know. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We simply confess our sinfulness to God. And in confessing our sinfulness to God, we are admitting that we are powerless. And then He cleanses us from all unrighteousness and He restores us to intimate fellowship with Him. Now, I want to say this. When we talk about 1 John 1, 9, we love that verse, don't we? We love the quote, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a powerful verse. We need to hang on to that. We need to remember that verse but I want to warn against making that single verse stand alone. Because you need to take in the whole context, because the whole context here, he's saying, don't sin. So you can't pull that out and, and, and just say uh, that God's promise to forgive us when we sins uh, is, is my all I, can, all I can sin smorgasbord, and that Jesus paid the check and so I can do whatever I want. You have to understand, you can't just take that verse and stand alone on it and say, well, now I can do whatever I want because he promised he'd forgive. Uh, because doing that means I'm not walking in the light. You, you've taken it out of context. So John's actually going to address that in, in short order in chapter two. We won't get to it tonight, uh, but it's but he, uh, you know, you, you know, of course, the chapter and verse uh, segments, they're all arbitrary. They were all added later. Um, and so this letter, when John wrote it, it was all just one big long letter. I really believe chapter two, verses one and two are much more tied, tied much more closely to these verses five through 10 than the others, because in chapter two, he begins to say, he, he says in, in response to, you know, Hey, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He says, but don't, don't go on. Don't keep on sinning. We'll get to that next week. Why don't we give you an important principle that's, that's true in every relationship, including our relationship with God. And it, this is the statement. Intimacy is rooted in honesty. Intimacy is rooted in honesty. Believers must remember that the relationship with God must be honest. Which is kind of funny because... God sees all and he knows all. So do we really think that we can keep some sin secret from him? You know, do you think God is ever shocked when you go to him and say, God, I got to tell you what I did. I really, really messed up today. He's not like, whoa, my goodness, where did that come from? No, he's like, yeah, I know. I saw that. You're not going to surprise me. He already knew. But, but, there, but sometimes we, you know, we just try to keep it high and we don't talk to him about some some believers may feel so ashamed of certain failures certain sins that they find it difficult to bring those things before god in confession uh, but but i'm here to tell you there is nothing to be gained by pretending since god already knows the truth 
There's nothing to be gained. You cannot gain anything by, by pretending that the sin is not there. Uh, however, there is much to be gained by honest and repentant confession. A acknowledging wrong is the first step toward a recovery of intimacy with God and communion with other believers. This is why confession plays such a vital role in both of those, both of those, in our relationship with God and with other people. And, and you know, here's one of the things that gets a little weird for us is that we, we in our culture, we've sort of lost, we, we grab hold of the idea where it teaches in scripture, like it says here, that we should confess our sin to God. But there are also places in scripture where it says, confess your sin to one another. That is a whole different ballgame, isn't it? And we don't do very well in our modern culture with that. But the truth is, if we could, if we could get to that place, and this is one of the goals of our small groups is to get to that place where we can really be honest about those things. When we do that, we do find a greater intimacy with one another. Um, now, with that being said, you have to have developed a relationship enough. You, I mean, I think everybody here knows you can't just trust everybody in, that goes to church w with the, your secret sins, right? You, you know that's true, right? You know that, if, that there are some that if they hear your secret sins, the first thing they do when they get home is they're on the phone calling Sister Farkle saying, I've got a prayer request for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, you need to pray. You need to pray for that Sam. I'm not here to tell you Sam needs to pray. Let me tell you what he told me today. <laughs> so, so, but, but there is, there is something about that, that, that it's vital in our communion with other believers. It's vital in relationship with God. Part of it is that, part of it is, is that I wasn't planning on saying, talking about any of these, but part of it is on this direction, on the horizontal level, is that if I can be intimate enough with you to confess where I fail in my sins, um, what I'm doing is I'm removing that mask and I don't have to pretend around you anymore. And if I don't have to pretend around you anymore, um, then, then, it, it, you know, then we can really grow. It's a, it's a big part of it. So... Um, Without an attitude of confession, we'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll begin to stockpile sin and guilt, and that'll turn to worry and shame, and then all of those things will drive us farther from the light of God's purity and holiness and righteousness and truth. The more we hide our sin, the more we want to avoid God. Isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden? And we still do it today. Every, every day we need to do what it takes to walk in the light and let His grace and mercy drive out the darkness. And with true conf confession, it comes, comes great comfort. Now, John says, when we talk, talks about this, if we confess our sins, he says that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just in forgiving it. Why does John use these two particular words? In what sense is God faithful? In what sense is he just in forgiving us our sin? Uh, because honestly, like with justice, when we think about that, um, justice ought to feel, the idea of justice ought to fill our hearts with fear. But how is it that forgiving my sin is, an, is a, a display of his justness, his justice? Well, to understand the word faithful, we have to understand that God has promised to forgive sin when it's confessed to Him. Not just New Testament, but let me read some of these, even from the Old Testament. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Jeremiah 31.34 No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Micah 7.19-20 You will again have compassion on us. You will tread out excuse me, tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our fathers in days long ago. 
So clearly, clearly here, think about this. If God had spoken such promises uh, for forgiveness as these, and then he refused to forgive sin, he would be unfaithful. But he is not. So when we ask for forgiveness, one of the assurances that we have is that we know God is always faithful. He always keeps his word. And he has said this multiple times, Old and New Testament, that he will forgive. In fact, he wants to forgive our sin. This is what he wants to do. It's not like, you know, like, like we sin and he's like, he's like, oh, I hope they don't confess. I really want to get him. I want to smash him good. You know, no, no. He wants us to confess and he wants to forgive his people. Uh, But for God to withhold forgiveness from those who confess their sins, it would make him to be a liar. And we know that he is is truth. He doesn't just tell the truth. He is truth. He he wants to maintain close fellowship with his his children. But but this can only happen when the way to him is cleared of sin's debris. And that can only happen through confession. He will forgive and nothing is to be gained by pretending that forgiveness is not needed pretending the sin is not there, nothing is to gain. Walking the light involves being honest about our sin, confessing it, receiving purification from it and forgiveness of it. But, But the denial of sin in our lives belongs to the darkness, the home of all lies. That, 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 okay, so that's faithful. Now, that God is just when He forgives us, means it speaks of the the reality. Think about it this way. God could not just simply overlook people's sins. If, if God were not holy, if God were not perfectly just, He could forgive all of humanity and just say, ah, oh, forget about it. Don't worry about it. But if He did that, it would be a miscarriage of justice. All right? Think about it like this. Um, say some crime is committed against you. Somebody breaks into your house, they steal your stuff, and they beat you up. You go to court, and the judge is on the, on the, uh, the, 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 behind a bench up there, and the perpetrator of this deed has, has, stands before the bench, and you're there, you're a witness against him, he's dead, there's no question he's, he's, he's uh, guilty in this situation, And if the judge looked at him and said, you know, I just feel like I want to have mercy today. You're free to go. No, your charges are forgiven. You would be outraged, wouldn't you? Because that is not justice. Right? And if God were to look at you and say, oh, don't worry about it. Just forget the sin. That would be a, 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 a testimony against his justice because that is not justice. And he cannot violate who he is. And since he is a just God, sin must be dealt with. It must. And if he does not deal with the sin, then he's made himself out to be a liar. But God is perfectly united within himself. He He's always in alignment with himself, right? So therefore, something has to happen. If we're going to be forgiven of our sin, something had to happen, right? He, 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 and so what he did, well, what we, we all know Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So if God looks at any person in all of creation, in all of history, and says, ah, I'm just going to overlook your sin, and death, the death sentence is commuted. Well, listen, sacrifices ha- have been offered for sin, and blood has been spilt from the beginning, and now you're just going to look at this person and say, oh, just forget it. That... That, that cannot change. What, what has need, been needed in the past cannot change because God do, do, cannot change. But justice has to be served in order to decisively deal with sin. But here's the beauty. And this is the, 
the part where now when we say that God is just in forgiving our sins, it doesn't create fear, it creates worship. Because now we look at it and you say, instead of making people pay for their sins, God took the punishment upon Himself through His Son. That's what we're going to get into next week when he begins to talk about Jesus as uh, being our propitiation, uh, which is an atoning sacrifice that's de designed to, to, to take the, uh, the wrath of God away. But we're going to get into that because it's different than any kind of other propitiation that had been, ever been done in history. But we'll get into that next week. But in, the, in this way, by, by God saying, I will pay the, the penalty of their sin, and Jesus came and he took death upon himself. He took the punishment, the, the death sentence that we earned on himself. And, and then and he paid our punishment in that way. Now God can say in, with perfect justice that sin has paid, been paid for. You are now forgiven. And in, in that way, justice was done and the way was paved for God to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you quote that verse and say, God is faithful and just, you're reminding yourself that God has promised that he will forgive sin. And you're reminding yourself that he has, he has himself paid the penalty for your sin. Therefore, you can receive forgiveness. And you can, you can count on that. Now, the third of these false claims that John's dealing with is, in, in many ways, the most serious of all, it, it is the claim that not merely are, uh, that, that, the, that the one making the claim is not sinning anymore. You know, they, they say, I don't sin, you know, I don't have any sin anymore. But it's a claim, he says, if we say we have not sinned. So in other words, they're saying, I have never sinned in my life. Um, and, and we can see it in the change of tense from the present in verse 8 to the aorist in verse 10. And you'll notice it catches it. It's translated that way where you see it, where he says, uh, it, where he says, if you say we have no sin. But then if you look at the next verse in, in verse uh, 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned. So you can see there's a little bit of difference there. Well, listen, this is so blatantly false that John returns back to the idea of lying but now he even strengthens it because he says not only is the man himself lying, but he's making God out to be a liar because God has declared that all of us are sinners and all of us need his grace. First Kings eight forty six. when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin and you become, ang become angry with them and give them over the enemy. Then Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, who is right? You know, because you've got these, these false teachers saying, no, I've never sinned. I, there's no need for this whole Savior thing. Uh, oh, is it the man who denies the reality of sin in general and in himself in particular? Or is God the one who is right, who declares that all have sinned? Well, there's only one answer. And it's what Paul said in Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. The, the application of this section of John's letter must be to each uh, man or woman individually. John has contrasted the nature of God, God is light, with the nature of man. And he's begun to show the uh, characteristics of those who walk in the light as opposed to those who walk in darkness. It, it's not enough that a man should claim to be in the light. He must actually walk in it. He must actually be a child of the light. But what will be true of the individual if God is actually the light of his life? What will be true? Well, obviously, I think the first thing is the light of God will be doing for him what light does. So for one thing, the light will be exposing the darkness so that the dark places are increasingly being cleansed of sin and they become bright and fruitful places for God's blessings. So if I'm a child of the light, if I'm walking in the light, 
then that light is going to be constantly exposing areas in my life that I've been trying to hide, that I've been trying to deny, that I things that are not right. And, and maybe, you know, listen, think of it this way. I think God works on us in levels, in layers. Because sometimes, you know, there are, uh, we, you know, we, we want to get down to the fine tuning, but there are big issues that he needs to deal, for, deal with first. And then later he'll come back and it'll be the same issue, but he works uh, down a little bit deeper in a different way. And he'll come back and it's the same issue, but works down a little bit deeper. And each time, you know, he's peeling another layer off and helping us see what's going on there so that we can, we can expose it to the light and we can ask for forgiveness and confess that before God. But but I want you to say to hear me when I say this, as the light is exposing that in us, that, that does not mean that the individual will, be, will become increasingly conscious of how good he or she is becoming. Um, in, in fact, that's really the opposite. That's, that's more a spiritual pride issue. On the contrary, a growth in holiness will, will mean a growth in true sensitivity to sin in one's life and an intense desire to eliminate from life everything that displeases God. So instead of boasting in his progress, the person will become increasingly ready to acknowledge sin and to seek to have it eliminated. And it will be a genuine acknowledgement. It will not be as it was in the case of a woman who went to Charles Wesley to pray. She asked him to pray for her because, as she said, she said, I am a great sinner. She added, I'm a Christian but I sometimes fail so dreadfully, please pray for me. And Charles Wesley looked at her rather sternly and, she, and he replied, yes, madam, I will pray for you, for you truly are a great sinner. And she said, what do you mean? I've never done anything very wrong. So she wasn't really acknowledging, she's just trying to get kudos from the great preacher. If God's light is really shining on us, we actually, what happens is we become more aware of how far short we fall because the more we get to know Him, the more we realize how sinful we really are. It becomes more, we become more aware of that, which in turn creates greater thankfulness and praise for the fact that we've been redeemed. So it's not a, you know, like, you know, flagellation, you know, where you're beating yourself up, but it's becoming more aware of your own sinfulness, which makes you more and more grateful for his forgiveness. You know, uh, it, it'll be like Isaiah, when he saw God in Isaiah 6, 5, he said, woe to me, I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now Isaiah was a, was a, was a fantastically educated man, a counselor to kings, he, was, he had much to be proud of in his life, but even though even as a prophet of God, when he stands in the presence of God, he realizes, whoa, I'm in big trouble here. I'm not everything I thought I was. Or like Peter, when, when uh, Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The more he got to know Jesus, the more he realized he didn't measure up to Jesus. Or with Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15. Now, this is, this is late in life because uh, Paul had this progression. I don't have time to go through it all tonight, I don't think. But he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm the worst. And it's interesting because the greater Paul grew in intimacy with Christ, the longer he walked with Jesus, the, the, more, the, harder, the, the more harshly he judged himself. You know, because first he started off early in his ministry, he'd say, yeah, I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of the apostles. And then later on, you know, by the time he's finished, he says, man, I'm just nothing but a sinner. And not only that, I'm the, I'm the worst of all. So you see this progression in our lives. Second, if God is our light and if we walk in the light, we will be growing spiritually. The Bible will be becoming more precious to us because it's in there where God is being revealed to us. Uh, we, will, we will love godliness, uh, not, not meaning that we'll always be perfect in that, but we will love it, we will strive for that, and we will be finding fellowship with God's people more and more delightful and more and more valuable. So, you know, if you find yourself disliking church more, that's a check on us that we need to look and say, 
wait a minute, something's not right here because, because I should be finding uh, fellowship with the people of God more valuable and more delightful than ever the closer I get to Him. And then finally, we'll also be finding it increasingly desirable to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. In, indeed, we will yearn to serve Him for we will know Him more and more as the one who brought us out of bondage of our darkness into His marvelous light. Wesley wrote of this desire. One of my all-time favorite uh, hymns says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, which is quickening, quickening just as life-giving, is a life-giving ray. I spoke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. To follow Christ is the natural desire of the one whose life has been illuminated by him. Now, I want to close our time tonight by going back to this idea of confession because I think it's something that has been largely lost in today's world. And we're going to close with these thoughts. But, but generally speaking, I think you'll, you'll agree with me, modern Western culture is moving away from the idea of personal failure and personal responsibility. I, I think you would agree with that. Our culture believes that, that apart from breaking laws, in which case the state dec decrees and declares guilt of transgression, but our, our world believes, our culture believes that people ought to be free to act as we see fit, indulging in our every whim and desire. We live in a culture that is dominated by a worldview in which its highest value is the freedom to fulfill our own desires. This is exactly the, this is the, 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 the very thing, for example, that leads to such a massively high divorce rate because it's all about fulfilling my own desires. I deserve to be happy. If I'm not happy in this, I should be able to walk away from everything and abandon every commitment and, and just do whatever I want to do. It's the same idea. Consequently, here's the thing. The very notion of confession is becoming increasingly alien because if it's just my own preference, why should I confess anything? But, but here's, here's the key, and I think you'll find this. To claim that some of those desires are sinful or wrong in any way in our culture is really the only sin that can be committed to, in, into the mind of our culture. You can do whatever you want, but if I say that that's sinful, I'm the one that's wrong. That's the culture in which we live. And uh, it, it's something that believers must be, be taught to do as we reject the assumptions of secular society. We know, and we must know, sin does exist, and its power is real. We cannot give in to the to the wooing of the world that says, oh, it's just a personal preference. Oh, you were born this way. Oh, this, oh, that. But we need to know sin does exist. It is in opposition to God and its power is real. And we, we must not only accept that fact, but we must, and not just accept that fact that it's out there somewhere, but we have to face our own failures and embrace God's forgiveness in our own lives. But sadly, you know what? The, the world is not alone in shunning confession. Some corners of the church are, are likewise hesitant to face up to failure. There, there are many churches that pretend that, that real Christians don't struggle with sinful activity. And they may not say that from the pulpit, but they do it in the way they actually live. Because if anybody confesses a sin, it's like, oh, you must have denied Christianity completely. You can't be a Christian if, you, if you're struggling with sin. In fact, you don't even hear the word sin in many congregations and from many television preachers. There's some that just won't say it. Well, this creates an unbearable burden for many believers who would rejoice in the face of true, true freedom uh, if only they were free to admit that they still struggle with sin in their own lives. Consider the Christian who struggles with pornography. And I, I suspect that this particular struggle is much more prevalent within the church than many realize because there's, there's a kind of shame that is associated with it makes it much harder for for people to talk about it but you know many believers are too ashamed to admit that they're caught up in this sin or or maybe it's not that one but any any other sin 
And as a result of, their, of that great shame that they're dealing with, they do not confess it to anyone, not even to God. Therefore, what happens? The sin remains secret. It remains hidden. And therefore, it remains much more difficult to overcome. Some Christians fail to confess sin because they're uncomfortable confronting their own failures. And, and that's an issue. But, but here's the other thing. Some Christians, others, fail to confess, confess sin because they're just all too comfortable with it. Yes, they know it's sin, and they know it falls short of God's standards, but somehow that sin has been, become acceptable in their eyes. It might happen slowly, particularly you know, with ongoing struggles that never seem to dissipate, where it's just constant struggle. And, you know, the, the believer just simply gives up and, and he or she not only gives up, but just stops confessing even. And, and that can, that's understandable to a degree since ongoing battles are wearisome and, and an, an apparent lack of progress can be disheartening, which the problem is, you know, it's really hard for us to judge our progress. It's sort of like trying to watch your own children grow. You ever notice that you, you when you had when you had small children and you go somewhere and, and you, somebody you haven't seen for a while and they say, "Wow, your kids have grown so much," and you're like, "Did they?" But you know, I didn't notice that because you don't see the growth. You can measure it, but you don't see it. The same is true in our lives. Sometimes there's this apparent lack of progress, and it and we just become so disheartened that we just sort of give up. And it's it's easier to just stop dealing with it, both in resistance and in confession. But the result is that the believer then allows a dark corner of his or her life to remain unexposed to the light. And as long as the sin remain secretly, secretly remains, then it will fester. While while unconfessed sin is and secret sin is no doubt common, it is not acceptable for God's people. To, to walk in the light is to allow the whole of one's life to be exposed to it, where I don't try to hide those things anymore. And it means that maybe I have to find at least one person with which I can go deep, where I can be honest with them and I can say, listen, I need to tell you about this area of struggle, this sin that has been secret from everywhere else, but I need to get it out. I need to expose it to the light because I want it to lose its power. But as long as it's hidden, it keeps its power. So we're not to have secret sins. We're not to become comfortable with sin. We're not to pretend that some sins are immune from confession. And while we may be comforted by God's forgiveness, we should not use that as an excuse to sin, and we should not become complacent about the, our own personal need for that forgiveness. Uh, after all, all our forgiveness came at a great cost, no less than the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And if we forget the seriousness of sin, then inevitably what we do is we cheapen the price that He paid for us on the cross. God forbid. May we take this to heart. May we not allow sin to stay. May we find someone to confess it. Confess it to God. Confess it to others. And find freedom because we know that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us of our sin. But more than that, it's more than just the forgiveness, isn't it? To cleanse us. Wipe it away. Get rid of it. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what He wants for us. To walk in the light. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into Your presence, we're so grateful for Your Word. And we're thankful, God, that You are faithful and that You are just when You forgive us our sins. And I pray, God, that if there's anybody here tonight or anybody watching on the live stream that that's harboring some secret hidden sin that's unconfessed that God that you would just you would just give them the courage to be to go deep with some other fo follower of Christ and that God in Jesus name that you would help them to to through your power through your strength to confess that sin to to someone else but also most importantly to confess it to you and God I pray that as we 
as we expose every part of our life to the light of, of Jesus Christ, God, I pray that even in those moments where it's painful, that it would be powerful growth experiences and that you would make us more and more like Christ. That's what we want, God. We want to draw, draw closer to you. And as we do, as we walk in the light, we want that light to expose everything. So God, if there's anything that, any blind spots in my life, blind spots in in the lives of those that are watching this, God, shine your light on it. Help us see it. And then God, help us to have the humility to come before you and confess that and, and, and find the forgiveness and the cleansing of sin that, that you offer, that only you offer. We ask it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.